Welcome to another episode of the Corrosion Journal interview series. My name is Sammy Miles, and I'm the Managing Editor-in-Chief of Corrosion Journal, AMP's peer-reviewed scientific journal. I'm excited to welcome several guests on today's episode, Jen Lott from The Ohio State University and Erin Karras from Sandia National Laboratory, as we celebrate International Women in Engineering Day. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Thanks, Sammy. So to start us off today, tell me a bit about your background, including what drew you to material science and engineering? All right, um, this is Jen, Jen Locke here. Um, I will go first. So uh, background guys, I'm a mid originally from Ohio, from Maslin, Ohio. Um, if anybody wants to Google it and get a map out, it's basically the south of Cleveland um, by about an hour's drive south, straight down 77. For anyone out there, that's a massive um, American football fan. Uh, Maslin is basically the same thing as Canton, Ohio, where the uh, Professional Football Hall of Fame is. Growing up, I thought everybody had a Hall of Fame. Uh, apparently, it was just my hometown. I learned as I got older. Um, so I grew up in Ohio, and then I went to undergraduate school at a place called Wittenberg University, which is in Springfield, Ohio, and I majored in physics there. I chose a small school because uh, toward one big school and it was just, I thought I'd get lost. It was way too intense. And I wanted kind of a more personalized um, education. Didn't want to learn from a bunch of TAs. And so I went to a small university. Um, my parents did not go to college. My stepfather was the only one who had. So um, he went to Akron and uh, I, I just didn't quite know what college would be about and didn't have a lot of influence for it. So I wanted to go to a small school because it just felt safer. Uh, I majored in physics, as I said, and then I went to work for one year um, for the Air Force. So the Air Force Research Labs are in Dayton, Ohio at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And that is where I got introduced to material science. I worked for um, a person named Captain Wynn Sanders, who worked under uh, Dr. Dan Miracle in the Materials and Manufacturing Directorate. And I, for a whole year, got to make bulk metallic glasses and see for aluminum, nickel, rare earth combinations, how bulk can you get, which isn't super bulk, but got to mix up lots of different things, make alloys, and then go do microscopy and see um, how much glass vulnerability I was able to achieve. And so I learned a ton, kind of fell in love with material science. And um, they, being Wynn and Dan, encouraged me to go to graduate school to figure out um, this interest that I had growing. And they really thought that I would be able to achieve a lot. And so they encouraged me to go to graduate school. So I started looking at different material science programs and settled on the University of Virginia, which is where I got my PhD. And I worked for Professor Rick Gangloff, who's now retired. I chose there because I had a connection with Rick. He, he was telling me about his research, which was an environment-assisted cracking. And it kind of connected to a story about failures I had heard when I was at the Air Force that was really interesting. Um, because they were trying to figure out why landing gear were failing and it ended up being this one zone only where the, the aircraft were being kept. And it turned out that a dog was urinating in the zone. And because when dogs smell urine, the security dogs all want to pee in the same location. And so they had trespassing cracking issues because of dog urine. And it was just such a fascinating story. And it was like just really cool sounding and, and interesting. And then when Rick was telling me about his research, it connected to that kind of really interesting feeling. And I was like, you know, this sounds fun, like CSI, but for metals. And so I went and got my PhD under Rick. I then went and worked for Alcoa at their research center, the Alcoa Technical Center, which was outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. 
I worked there for about three years. Um, in between there, I got married. So my, my spouse, his name is Landon. Uh, he and I went to undergrad together, then grad school together. We got married kind of right before we moved to Pittsburgh. And he got a job at the University of Pittsburgh. And then in the path of working at Alcoa, a job at Ohio State opened up. And I'd always kind of entertained this dream of teaching as a little girl. I would pretend in our basement to be um, to teach like little kids. And I don't know, it's just, I just thought, I don't know why. I always really thought it'd be fun to teach. And I would play pretend teacher as a little kid. And then uh, in college, I was like, I don't want to be a school teacher because a K to 12, I don't know. It just, that age group never really spoke to me. Uh, so I didn't think I was going to be a teacher. And then in college, I was like, ooh, this is the kind of teacher I would like to be. And so in getting my PhD, I kind of wanted to go that path, I guess, but um, didn't know if it'd be right for me because I didn't see anyone that looked like me while there were some women. I never had a woman uh, professor who was married with kids. And so I just didn't know if it was possible. So anywho, this job at Ohio State opens up. My spouse and I talk about it. We were also trying to get pregnant at the time. And my husband finally said, you know, if you don't even try, you're going to regret it. And so just give it a try. And if you get the job, we'll figure out what to do. So anywho, uh, I interviewed and I interviewed at Ohio State when I was five weeks pregnant. So every morning I would get ready for an interview and also have morning sickness. Great fun. Uh, but it went well, obviously. I, I toughed through it. Uh, got the job at OSU. Uh, my spouse and I decided let's give it a shot and see how it goes. I mean, the worst thing that can happen is it doesn't work out and we we go back to working in industry. We figure something out like, you know, we'll be fine. So we, we gave it a shot. Um, and so I've been here at Ohio State now for almost nine years. My daughter was born right before I started my position. So my daughter Clara was born and four months later we moved to Ohio and I started my job here at Ohio State. And then we have had a son since, and then most recently I got tenure. So it's it's been working out. I now have two kids and I've been here at Ohio State for a good while. That's fantastic. And how about you, Erin? So yeah, I'm Erin Karras. I'm at Sandia National Labs. Um, my history is obviously much shorter and much more early career than Jen. I went to Colorado State University for my bachelor's degree. I studied electrical engineering. And while I was studying electrical engineering, I got a summer internship at Sandia National Labs, where I'm at now. But it was an undergrad intern position in materials. And I had some awesome mentors who gave me a really wide variety of projects. And I kind of fell in love with this idea of being able to change material properties on purpose or pick the right material for the right job, which then in grad school turned into how does those properties affect your corrosion response and how does your corrosion response in turn affect your mechanical properties. But my mentors were awesome and convinced me to go to graduate school. So then I went to graduate school for material science and engineering at Arizona State and I got my doctorate with Carl Saradsky and when he was talking to me about the project that I would be working on, right, he was telling me about how you could take silver gold alloy and leach some of that silver out and then get a brittle crack in this normally ductile material. And to me, that was just like the craziest material property change I could ever possibly imagine. So that's what I went on to study for my doctoral work. And now I, I was a postdoc at Sandia and now I'm staff. And my focus has been kind of broadly additively manufactured metals. So getting to change materials through processing parameters 
both during the processing and post-processing and getting to see how that changes your corrosion response. Great. It's great learning a little bit about y'all as we start this conversation today. So relating to your backgrounds, were there any women that influenced your career? Erin, let's go ahead and start with you on this one. Yeah, so I guess the part I kind of left out was that while I was at Colorado State University, I didn't actually know what field of engineering I wanted to go into. My mom was a mechanical engineer. Her dad was a civil engineer. I was kind of bouncing around and I was taking a introductory electrical engineering class and I had this female professor, Olivera Notaros, and she was wonderful. And she recognized in me that I really enjoyed what I was doing in her class and that I was good at it and that I was enjoying helping the people around me understand it and that I had this kind of passion for electrical engineering. So she sat me down and was like, I think you need to go into electrical engineering. And it translates really well into corrosion engineering in case you're wondering, because corrosion is basically a fancy circuit. And then at Sandia, I um, started working for a guy by the name of Alan Roach. And he brought me in at the same time as a master's student, Amy Kazmarowski. And he was really passionate about making sure that we felt welcome as women in a very male dominated area and ended up handing the mentorship off to this um, master's student eventually. And she was the one who encouraged me to actually look at Arizona State. So I would say there've been a lot of women, you know, from my mom to the professor at Colorado State to, you know, this mentor I had at Sandia who really shaped my career. And I absolutely would not be where I am today if it wasn't for them. Great to hear. Jen, is there anyone and in, who's influenced your career? Yeah, so um, I think you know, a, a little bit different path than than Aaron had. Um, I I always really liked science and liked kind of making things. As a kid, I I don't know, probably considered illegal now, but I put together VCR so I could rent movies from Blockbuster and then keep them, like give back Blockbusters, but have my copy of my own. And my parents are not engineers at all. My mom, um, when I was a little kid, worked as a bank teller, and then she. I went back to school when I was in middle school and high school so that she'd be a financial consultant. Um, my dad sold cars. My stepmom uh, worked for a home builder. This is like, I don't know, the person that did all the things for him. And then my stepdad was an accountant. So at least there was one mathy person, uh, but no engineers, anything like that. And so I just really liked sciencey stuff. My grandma always thought I should be an engineer, I think largely because of the tales of the things I would rig around the house. <laughs> um, but so I went to college and I was initially going to be a psychology major and then um, realized that wasn't quite for me, although I still find psychology fascinating. It wasn't mathy and sciencey enough. So I switched to physics. And then uh, with I realized I didn't want to be a physicist and Wittenberg was too small to have engineering. Then I worked at the Air Force Base, right? So when I worked there, it was largely kind of happenstance. I learned about material science and engineering because that's who hired me and I really liked it. And that's how I got into it. But that being said, it was two males, but Wynn and Dan really were super influential in showing me, hey, you can do this. You should do this um, and you should go to grad school. And, and so I did. Um, in undergrad, I have one female professor and she, Elizabeth George, I still keep in touch with her. She was phenomenal. Um, and she was married, but she had no children. And then I went to grad school and there was one female professor at UVA um, and also a wonderful person, uh, no children. And so I didn't always know if 
who I wanted to be as a human would align with what I wanted to, what my dream would be to be, you know, as a material scientist, although I knew I could do it and like, I'd be great no matter what. So I just kept going because I don't know, I'm excessively stubborn and tenacious, I suppose. Um, but I will say at least I had one person when I was in grad school, um, Pam Norris. So she was a professor of mechanical engineering and she had a couple of kids um, and Rob Kelly appointed me to her to talk to her about, hey, what's it like to be a woman in engineering with a family? And she gave me good advice to give me kind of confidence and strength to push through. And so she now, she's actually um, the vice provost at George Washington University now. So she's no longer at UVA. Um, but she told me, you know, basically you can, it's okay if you try to go be a professor and you go try this and it doesn't work. It doesn't mean you're bad. It doesn't mean you stink. It doesn't mean you're not capable. It means it wasn't a right fit for you. And it's okay to try, try one thing and then try something else because that wasn't a right fit for you. And don't take it as, meaning something bad about yourself take it as um it wasn't a right fit for you and try something else and so and she she showed me a big file of all the grants she'd gotten nose on she did just a lot of things even though she wasn't a material scientist more of just a woman who really helped me um have confidence that I could do something when no one that I could see that looked exactly like I wanted to look was doing it I think that's great advice um, that it just might not be a good fit for you if it doesn't work out, not that you failed. I think that's, I, I think that applies to pretty much anybody, right? If just because you have this vision of what you want to do, maybe it doesn't pan out with how, how your career is going to evolve, but maybe something else will, and it'll lead you in a different direction. It's like a positive um, reframing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now, Pivoting slightly, how is diversity and inclusion important to the field? And kind of along that line, what are some ways that it benefits research? Um, let's start with Jen on this one. All right. So um, I think I think obviously, and I'm sure Aaron feels the same way. Diversity and inclusion is really important because to see yourself in a space gives you confidence that you can do it. And there are obviously, and I think everyone would agree, right? There are awesome potential engineers, researchers, PhDs, anything um, for our field sitting, looking like every which way out in our community. Um, and some people don't know that they can do something because they don't see anyone like them. And I think, you know, that resonates with a lot of us, that feeling of maybe I can't because I don't see it happening. And so to give other people just the confidence that they can do it. Also, as you're charting through a path as a less seen individual, it's really important to go to someone else to get advice. Like I said, with, with Pam Norris, right, that Rob pointed me to her to go and ask questions to so I could get some advice so that I didn't get um, too down when there's difficult times, but there's always going to be something that happens. We don't live in a perfect world and you need someone to just kind of bounce it off of that you identify with. So you can be open and honest with them. And so having more people around means we'll get more awesome people, right? I think the other thing is that the more um, kind of diverse thinking you have in a group, the more ideas that pop out, right? And you always need other ideas besides your own, not because you're not good at what you do, but because you can't see everything, you can't think of any everything. And it particularly when you're really stuck in a problem, 
you can be so stuck. You just can't see something and a different person will see something differently than you. And so having diverse ideas really does, um, one, enliven a space, but two, enliven research and enliven your findings. And so I think it's really important for us to be doing the best science that we can, that we include um, different ideas and different ideas will come from different types of people that have different perspectives from our own. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's really important just for us. We, we all want to do the best science we can. To do that, we need different ideas and different people to make it happen. I absolutely agree, particularly where, you know, when we're talking about achieving the highest possible quality of research, everyone's lived experiences contributes to the way they view the world. And even though you may not see the connection between how someone grew up and the way they view science, it's there. And my experience has absolutely been that we learn the most and we achieve the most when we give everyone a seat at the table and listen to where they're coming from, as well as what their ideas are, because it might just be that they're challenging your preconceived notions and they force you to think about something in a new way. That's, I think both of y'all's answers are great. I, I think the more, the more different viewpoints we have, the better and the stronger research we'll get, the more we'll be able to do with it. Maybe it's turning it into products and services, right? You know, if we can overcome this obstacle, what could it be long-term? So I, I definitely agree with y'all. The more, the more viewpoints, um, the better. And how, how has the industry changed during your career? Let's start with Erin on this one. So I, it's hard for me to say from a career perspective, right? Because I am fairly young, but I do feel like I saw a big difference between my experience in electrical engineering and material science. Being in electrical engineering, you know, I was really privileged to have a female professor who wanted to encourage women to feel welcome and seen in that space. But there was still a lot of misogyny, a lot of, you didn't earn this, you don't deserve to be here, you only got an A because the professor was female. So even that professor was dealing with some of the misogyny from the students. And it was kind of amazing to me when I then moved into material science, where even though women were, it was still not 50-50 representation, but just having that many more women in this space made a huge impact, both on being able to see yourself in the work going on around you and my experience. Yeah, so yeah. not, yeah, not that I'm, I don't know. I don't, I'm not that much older than Aaron, but I am older enough that I've been around a little bit longer and had a few more um, transitions. Um, maybe the other um, interesting part is I grew up in like the Ohio that you might imagine, well not, the Ohio some people imagine is farms. So not farms, but farm adjacent, right? And so a little bit more um, of a male dominated culture in general, right? And more of a conventional kind of thinking set. And so I think the changes I've seen throughout my career um, are definitely there and they're there for the positive and for the better. Um, and some of that might just be also where I came from to where I am now that makes it um, seem like a change. So I'm sure if people grew up in different areas, they might not see as much of a change. But, um, you know, like I said, when I went to college as well as grad school, there were not as many, when there were female professors, they were few and far between. And if they were married, they usually did not have any children. Um, if they did have children, their spouse wouldn't be working. And so you didn't see as much of this, um, the type of faculty member that 
I see now at Ohio State and I see elsewhere as well. So nowadays faculty, uh, when they're hired in, your younger faculty set tend to be married couples, tend to have kids. There's a lot of people like me now around me, which is fantastic. And I know it's also fantastic for the student body because the number of students that say to me, um, I think I can do this because you have kids and that person has kids. And there's it, people have, a lot of students have a lot more confidence in their ability to do all the things they want to do um, than they did when I was in school because we just didn't see that out there. Um, and like Aaron mentioned, right, there there was and there still is um, kind of these microaggressions that happen, right, where people have implicit biases, sometimes explicit biases. I think the amount of explicit bias uh, has reduced, meaning people, when I was an undergrad, I was told by a professor, I'm really surprised you're so smart because you're a female, right? No one really says that now. I mean, this was, I'm not... I can age myself a little bit. So I'm 40. Uh, I went to college, started college in 2000. So it wasn't that long ago. It's not like it was the 70s, right? It was still in this century. Um, but I was told that straight to my face as if there wasn't a problem in saying that, right? Um, people don't, there are still people who believe that. And I'm sure there are faculty who still say it, but it's not as prevalent. People know it's wrong now and they should have in 2000, but you know, um, they didn't. And so I think I have seen a change in what is and is not acceptable, what kind of trainings people have so they understand a little more what explicit bias is and that that's not okay. But there still are microaggressions. And that's, you know, that's something that takes a lot longer to go away and probably will never go away because implicit bias won't. But it, it has changed in the community that I see around me and the amount of, um, incidents in life that give you a really bad day and make you visit the bathroom to say things by yourself. <laughs> that has reduced. And that's wonderful, I think. I that's should say you. sort of mm -hmm. to Jen's point that, you know, the stories I heard from my mom about the things that she dealt with, you know, decades before I even, you know, Jen came along through the system. I, my experience was much better than hers. So it absolutely has improved, but I don't want people to think that just because it's improved, it's perfect. Agreed, Erin. It, it is not perfect. And so setting proper expectations is always important to keep one positive. I think that's, it's good to hear that things are changing and getting better. And I do think that we do have wide a ways to go still, but it is, it is improving. Very related to that, what are some of the challenges you've experienced in your career? Um, Jen, let's start with you on that one. Yeah. Um, so I will talk uh, challenges related to COVID because one, it's not so long ago. And, and I think all kinds of different people had different challenges. Um, and also because, I don't know, I guess that part of my life, I block out sometimes for my own positive mentality. And um, Sammy kindly kind of reminded it in our pre-discussions. And I think it is important for people to kind of realize what life looked like for some. Um, so as I mentioned, I had a uh, Oh, I still have, not that I had, they're still here. I have two little kids. <laughs> they are currently eight and five. And during the full heats of COVID, they were five and two, just like a, just turned two. Actually, no, he turned two during the full COVID. Yeah, I made his birthday cake. <laughs> so um, we had asked, they were both still in daycare. Our daughter had not started kindergarten yet. She um, had just gonna turn five. And so we had absolutely no care whatsoever 
Um, our families, although my husband and I are from Ohio, we are not from Columbus. We are from the opposite ends. And so our family was not close enough um, to really be able to help. And also kind of given their ages and whatnot, it sometimes wasn't great to, to have them help because it, we, no one knew what was going on, right? And so we were home <laughs> for what, two and a half months with the kids uh, and with our jobs. And my spouse is also a professor here at Ohio State. And so um, there are some parts that were really lovely. We got a lot more family time, um, some really cool memories with our kids, but also some parts that were really not lovely. The fact that we still were expected to have the same output for work. And my spouse and I, luckily he's amazing. So we split our days half and half. One of us would work the morning shift, um, breakfast to lunch. The other one would work the afternoon shift. The afternoon shift was preferred because the two-year-old took a nap. So you only had one kid to, to hang out with. Um, and that one kid maybe could watch a movie and you could do a little work too. So we'd swap which day we had morning and afternoon. And then after the kids went to bed, we would work some more. So for two and a half months, we got about three or four hours of sleep a night and um, lack of sleep will affect you greatly. And we were already sleep deprived because we have two little kids, right? Like your kids don't sleep through the night until, I don't know, they're about five. So we were running on lots of years of no sleep. And then we just like plunged into this sleep deprived, very ugly lifestyle that um, one, you can't get as much work done. You can't get as much good work done. You can't think very well. Um, and so it was really difficult. I didn't get a, I didn't get as much done. And I also, my spouse and I both felt you get this like kind of grief about you because you see other people who don't have to balance that and how much they can get done in the day. And it's almost like expectations get set of what people can do. And no one, we felt very unseen. No one could realize we just couldn't do all of this. And we felt like we were under siege because everyone, not everyone, some people are making great progress and doing great things. Like we are just struggling to survive, not sleeping. Um, I mean, in the end, we are still married. Our kids are still happy. They have no memory of this, which is unfortunate because the best days of their lives. Uh, but we're still married and we made it through. We made sure that every meal we all ate together so no one could work through meals. And on half a day on Saturday and half a day on Sunday, we'd work. And the other half a day, we'd go to something as a family so that my husband and I actually could see each other. Um, so we only saw each other Saturday afternoon and Sunday afternoon. But we went on cool bike rides. We got, it was looking back, there are, it was kind of fun, mostly because I've just slept more and I forgot the pain of that. But um, it was definitely being a mom, really being a parent, because I think my husband has, he was uh, not a mom, he was a dad, but he had the same challenge that I did um, during that time. Being a parent was excessively difficult, parents of young children, um, and not something I think either of us had um, entertained in our minds as an option of life when we started our faculty positions or chose to be engineers. Had you told me that, maybe I'd have chosen a different life path because <laughs> um, it was difficult. But anyway, that's that's a challenge that I think I as a parent more than I as a woman faced. But um, it definitely was really hard and it set work back a lot. And I still have some ramifications of that. I didn't put any proposals in during that time. I didn't publish. So I have a publication backlog. I um, am a quarter from going poor right now. And I'm putting in tons of proposals now because of it. And it's, you know, that work that I missed, I have to fill in after because it doesn't go away. So I'm still feeling the pains a little bit, but um, yeah, so that was a challenge. <laughs> and that's something that 
I've, I've read different studies talking about the impact of COVID specifically on female researchers, and it has to do with that parenting aspect. Kids are not in school, now what? Um, and, and when they look at how much research was published, it's, and they've, they've looked at that split between men and women, it just dropped from women. And not, because not all households have that ability to do that even split where somebody takes half a day fortunate. and somebody takes the other. Mm-hmm. Very fortunate. One that my spouse had a similar job to me so we could be similarly flexible and very fortunate that my spouse um, has a little bit more modern um, thinking on the balance of load. Not, not that he's like 100% 50-50 all the time, uh, but when I get upset and 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 yell, he makes changes and he's great. So I'm very fortunate that uh, my spouse is super supportive. <laughs> and Erin, same question um, over to you. What are some of the challenges you faced during your career? Well, I don't have children. I have fur babies. So my COVID experience was much easier. But one of the things that I did notice more than I had before was that I tend to be very blunt, particularly when it comes to my writing style. And in COVID, we were sending a lot more emails and I had to be really careful with how I worded things and throwing in, you know, extra things so that people didn't think I was mad. You know, I'd always been told like, oh, as a woman, like people are just going to take you being very direct differently than they often will a man. Of course, that's not always true, but I found it to be particularly true in emails, right? I, in person, I think I experienced less of that because people can see my facial expressions, but in email, people are like, oh, you're very blunt. You're very direct. You're very to the point. I don't want to bother you. I don't want to ask for help. I don't want to bounce ideas off of you because you seem, you know, more direct. (laughs) So I think that was something interesting that I learned about myself that related to being a woman in science during COVID. Yeah. And I I think the way we all communicate, um, COVID definitely highlighted the importance of in-person facial expression, even, you know, because you can't always turn a camera on. So it's, it's huge what impact that has on, on emails. Because then if you brought, if you bring a mood in with you, when you start reading an email, it doesn't matter what the other person said when they wrote it, right? You're going to take it with whatever tone you brought to the table. So um, I use more smiley face emojis now, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I, I actually have seen an increase of those over the last couple of years in professional emails. Like this is, this is a plus, a good thing, a good thing. Here's my face. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good way to make sure people know you're not mad when they don't have your tone of voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pivoting a bit, uh, what advice do you have for women in underrepresented groups that are new to the corrosion field? Um, let's start with Erin on this one. So I think a kind of general piece of advice for people in the corrosion field is to read the old papers because there are so many hidden gems and it's a real shame if we can't keep that knowledge transfer going between generations of corrosion scientists. And then kind of adding on to that, it can be hard to ask the dumb, dumb in air quotes, questions when you feel like you are an underrepresented person in that group, when you feel like you are the odd man out. But it's so important to ask these questions because it benefits you, but it also benefits the person who's answering the question I know that I tend to learn a lot when I have to explain a topic. It kind of 
forces me to expand my way of thinking a lot of times. And Jen? Yeah, so I think my advice, particularly for people who um, are either underrepresented or underrepresented or um, historically marginalized, so you feel under attack, even if you are seemingly well represented. I think the kind of the, one of the most important things and kind of Aaron touched on this earlier is that having this proper expectation of where reality sits and then resilience associated with it. So uh, find yourself somebody, it might not be directly in your field, but somebody at least with some tangential touch to it um, that you identify with. And you can talk to about when tough things happen, right? There are um, times, but last week I had somebody, I was, we were both, we were at a research meeting. We're both trying to walk in the same hall. And the guy's like, well, you're prettier. You get to go first. I'm like, okay, great. I'll go first. Yay. Like just really you're old and I'm not, maybe that's just it. Right. But it's one of those things. And that's something silly that doesn't bother you ever. Right. But that happens on a weekly basis. Right. But there are things that happen where I get things said that really pee me off or things that happen that really pee me off, right? They do still happen. And if I come in with the expectation that the world is better and I I deserve better treatment and I better get it. Yes, I deserve better treatment, but I'm I'm not gonna get it because we live in an imperfect world. I'm not perfect, nor is anyone else. And we have to set that up as a realistic expectation, mostly just so that we don't get so upset that it affects our ability to work because the reality is things are going to happen and they're going to upset us. And if I choose to let that ruin my ability to be productive, that can have really bad outcomes. And so I need to, not that you need to just like suck it up and take it, but you need to digest it in a way that's productive so that you can continue to do your job. Um, and then if you need to file reports, like I have, um, I had a, a student recently where we've had to file a Title IX report because something happened, right? And she's being super productive through it, which is fantastic, right? But those things happen and we can file reports and we can make sure that we stop this bad behavior, but we can't let it stop our progress. Otherwise, if we can't do our jobs, then it hurts us too. And so I think being resilient, understanding that if you're underrepresented, you're going to have to have a little more resilience than the person possibly next to you because you, you will have to reframe things and get really good about shoving through pain a little bit because silly things will happen like the old guy saying you're pretty great, whatever, right? I can push back that. Hey, thanks, I'm 40, I still look good, yay, right? But there will be things that are gonna upset you and they do me, right? I get, you can ask my spouse, he probably remembers more of them because I <laughs> exude to him, right? Um, but those things will happen. So stay resilient, go find a mentor that you identify with who can help you see that, hey, this happens, it's gonna be okay, we can push through and gives you sage advice of what to do because sometimes the people that are different than you um, can't give you advice that's well aligned to what you need and what your reality is. And it's really important, um, at least I have found it's really important to be able to know what advice I need to act on given my perspective in life. You know, I, I get great advice from Jerry Frankel, but sometimes he's not a mom, right? He has children. They're older now, but right, he wasn't a mom. And so for, for him, for him to tell me things, I have to figure out which of those things is going to work for me as a person. Um, and it will be different. 
from me as a person versus someone else as a person. And so finding also a woman I can go talk to who's like, yeah, no, I tried that. The kids didn't react so well. Maybe, maybe you don't want to do that. Right. So knowing that you have someone that can give you advice tailored to you and know that you don't have to take everybody's advice. Advice is advice. You don't have to act on it. And it's okay in your mind to be like, no, that's stupid. And I'm not going to do it Um, because it's good for them and smart for them, but they don't have your perspective. So it's okay not to live on every advice that a mentor gives you because it might not work for you. And that's okay. Um, Do what you know is going to be good for you. Move forward with it and um, have resilience and call on people like me and Aaron, if you can't find someone, right? Because we can certainly... um, help be that person who can give you like, it's okay. This has happened to me too. And you're going to be fine. And yeah, that wasn't right, but it happens and it's going to be okay. Any way to make you get through it in a productive fashion. You know, that also kind of makes me think Jen about how, when you have realistic expectations and resiliency, you can find allies in really unexpected places, right? Like the men who are kind of afraid to like step in there because they're like, I don't know if this is overstepping or not when you have some grace there for them, they can turn into some fabulous allies. You are so right, Karen. Yeah. So I would say that that's another big piece of advice. Even if, you know, they're not going to be a reflection of you in that space, they can still be really great allies and not to overlook that. And you might find sometimes um, that people can share a perspective with you in an unexpected fashion, right? Like, like I said, my spouse, he is a, a white man, right? He had a very similar experience through COVID that I did because he shared, like we did everything 50-50, right? And so he shares a lot of the perspective that women scientists and women faculty here have of that COVID time. Even though looking at him, you wouldn't naturally think so. And so I think like Aaron says, if you kind of open yourself up um, a little bit more and be vulnerable, you might find some interesting shared perspectives from people that you wouldn't realize, remembering that there are invisible minorities out there, people who have been kind of disparaged against and you don't realize it because you don't know them. And so um, it is good to to be more vulnerable. It's scary, but it usually never hurts. Well, we are are at time. And before we wrap up, if people want to get in touch with you later, what's the best way for them to reach you? Jen, do you want to start? Yeah. Uh, so my email is lock, L-O-C-K-E. So locking a door with an E at the end. Lock, L-O-C-K-E dot one, two, one at O-S-U dot E-D-U. Um, you also, if you like, I talked too fast, you didn't catch a number or whatever there. If you go and Google Fontana Corrosion Center, and go to people, um, you will find me in there because I'm a part of the Fontana Corrosion Center. And so there's a link to my email in there. Um, and then there's also all kinds of stuff about Fontana Corrosion Center. So if you want to go to grad school um, or be a postdoc, go there too. <laughs> Great plug. And my LinkedIn is probably the best way to find me. I have a unique last name. So hopefully it's not too hard to find me. Perfect. With that, I'm Sammy Miles. I'm here with Jen Locke and Aaron Karras. And thanks for listening to another episode of Corrosion Journal's interview series. You can subscribe to AMP Podcasts if you haven't already on Apple, Google, Spotify, and all the major distributors. If you want to learn more about the journal, make sure to visit corrosionjournal.org. You can also find all episodes of AMP Podcasts on amp.org. That's A-M-P-P dot O-R-G. 
We'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks for listening.